0: Morning, everybody. All right. I, you know, when I think back on growing up as a kid in church, it's interesting to go back and reflect on the things that I thought were very important in regards to Christianity or what made you a good Christian. And like most kids, my world was black and white. When you're a young kid, you don't have a lot of space for gray. So it was black and white. And of course, it was predominantly based on what you can see by way of behavior. And so we lived, what it seemed to me, based on a set of rules and laws and commands and expectations. And looking back, I'm not even sure where all of them came from necessarily, but I knew if you violated them, then you were not considered, at least in my childhood brain, as a very good Christian. What that meant was, if you were to say a cuss word, I had a definitive opinion about your status as a Christian. If we were to go into a restaurant and I were to see you imbibing with a little bit of an alcoholic beverage, I would have a very definitive opinion about where I thought you kind of fit into the scheme of good Christianity. In fact, I remember conversations with my grandparents about whether it was okay to even go into a restaurant that served alcohol, let alone going in and drinking anything. I remember growing up here in our lobby, we had a little rack on the wall that had a bunch of pamphlets and tracts. You know what I mean by that, tracts and pamphlets? And one of them was a pamphlet or a tract that condemned mixed bathing. Does anyone know what mixed bathing is? Anyone grew up with anything like that? Mixed bathing, it's not like, hey, taking a shower together. Mixed bathing was boys and girls swimming in the same pool together. So like going to the Twickenham pool, if you were a boy and there were girls in the pool with you, that was frowned upon as not being a good Christian thing to do. Going to a school dance was quite controversial Back in the day, and I'm talking about back into the day before they had twerking, which it's a shame to me because now that I'm really good at it, I really think it would be a kind of like, you, you, want to, you want to see it? No, okay. All right, moving on. Kelly, Kelly will tell you stories. of. I mean, anyone else grew up in a church like this? Like that kind of traditional, conservative, a lot of rules? Anyone kind of grew up in a church like that? Kelly will talk about uh, for her, modesty was a big deal in her church. And what that meant for her is on Wednesday nights uh, when she were to leave like sports practice like volleyball or softball, she had to change into a dress in the car before they got to church because uh, if you were a good Christian, you of course wore a dress to church. Fortunately, I grew up in a church that was a little bit more liberal and that when they allowed us to play cards, that was okay, and we could go see moving pictures. Anyone know like the moving pictures? We had rules about what you could not do, a lot of those, and we had rules of what you should do, that you're supposed to do as a good Christian, which meant for us that you attended church, not just on a Sunday morning, but I'm talking, you went Sunday morning Bible class, and then afterwards you went to Sunday morning worship, and then you came back hours later to Sunday night worship service, and then you came back on Wednesday night to Wednesday night Bible study, and then you went to any youth group functions, and if there was a gospel meeting that lasted for a week, you were there every night. You got baptized, and you did it right, or you did it again. I remember I was at the I was in college, but I went back to the church camp I grew up in, and one of the teenage girls there at camp wanted to get baptized, and so we went to the lake uh, and we're going to baptize her. So I dunked her under the water to baptize her, and then when she came up out of the water, what should be a celebratory yay, you know, moment, what happens is a little kid on the pier starts screaming at the top of his lungs, top of his voice. Her arm didn't go under. Her arm didn't go under. Her arm didn't go under. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to baptize you and hold you under for a very long time. And the poor girl, I mean, she's not going to have an arm when she gets to heaven. Like, the rest of her body got saved, but her arm, I don't know what's going to happen. So that was my black and white world growing up, like very... But then what happens is you get a little bit older and those gray areas start to become more apparent and even some of the hypocrisy that comes with such an external observance of things and then you discover that one of the deacons of the church who didn't cuss, didn't drink, came to every service, got baptized in the right way, was behind closed doors physically and sexually assaulting his wife. And you discover it's possible to not drink, smoke, or chew or date girls that do and yet still be consumed with bitterness and anger in a way that oozes through every conversation and every attitude. That you could do externally all the right things and you could still be mean. And there are whole religious groups who are known for their piety and strict moral codes, and what it is that they're against, and what they refuse to participate in, an emphasis on the rules. But when you peel back the layers, what you discover is it's a community riddled with a never-talked-about dirty little secret in regards to the number of child molestation cases. See, the focus on the outside often betrays the enormous depths that is true reality. And so our little metaphor that we're using in terms of our graphic with the iceberg. When you see an iceberg, it can be amazing and stunning and breathtaking, but the truth is you don't know half of it or even more. What you see coming up out of the water is just a small percentage of a much larger reality, the reality that you don't see because it's hidden in the depths of the ocean. And a religion that is based on just the outside of what is observed by way of behavior that focuses on the external misses that there is a greater reality that you don't see because it's hidden in the depths of the human heart. And so the real issue for us is not what we can see or observe externally. The issue is what lies beneath. And this is where Jesus goes over and over again. He doesn't concentrate on the externals for him. It's what lies beneath. It's capturing the heart. But if I might for just a moment, let me defend legalism if I could, which I know that sounds silly just even saying it like that. But at least when it comes to legalism, at least let me say this. No one intends to be legalistic, meaning they don't start out thinking, I'm going to be really legalistic with the rules and laws and those sorts of things. It usually starts out very nobly with very good intentions. Its motivation is typically born out of a desire to be right and to be holy and to keep oneself pure. And what happens is in order to do that, what happens is people begin to build then in their lives, to set up in their lives what I would call guardrails. Right? You know what that looks like on the highways, there's guardrails. Those guardrails are there for your protection, to keep you on this side where it's safe, rather on the other side where it's not safe. And I am for guardrails in life. I think people need them. And guardrails, though, are different for each person, meaning the guardrails that I need in my life might not be the same guardrails that you need in your life. And the reason why is because my sins are different than your sins. The things that I have proclivities towards by way of sin are not the same things that you are probably prone to or inclinities towards sin. Now, the key is that we recognize we all have them, like we all have things that we move to in greater propensity than others, but might not be? might not be the same as yours. I mean, and just to be candid with it, I mean, you could probably dump a truck full of heroin in front of me, and I'm going to be okay. Like, that's just not my thing. That's not my, I, I'm not saying, I mean, I've got other things that you could dump truck in front of me, and I'm in big trouble, but heroin's not it. And so you're like, well, what is your thing, Sam? Like What is your so, so Mine is, I love people too much. That's a real struggle for me to, <laughs> it's a joke, I'm just kidding. Get how I did that, how I made myself look good? It's like the job interview, you know, and they want you to know, well, what are some of your weaknesses? Like, what are you supposed to say? Like, I'm a workaholic, I care too much about my work, and I mean, who, who says I'm lazy and I like to steal office supplies? Like, well, nobody, <laughs> nobody says that. Okay, back to guardrail. Let's talk about guardrails. I think if we're really honest with ourselves. We know, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really strong enough to be in that context. You might be, that's not your problem, but for me, I know if I'm in this context, I'm going to really struggle in that. Or uh, for me, I can't be with that person or that group of people without really struggling Or in that particular situation, you might fly through it with, you know, just whoo, not me. You put me in that same situation and I'm in in trouble. So I think guardrails are, they're not a bad thing. In fact, they can be healthy and I think they can be necessary. I want for all three of my kids for them to have good, healthy guardrails when it comes to their dating relationships. I'm I'm all for that. So let me tell you how this works. So how do you get from like, okay, good, healthy guardrails to legalism? This is typically how it works. What happens is, You take something in the Bible that does look clearly like, no, this is God's kind of command, so to speak. Like, we know that as followers of Jesus, he's not calling us to live a life of drunkenness. So you can see pretty clearly in the scriptures that a life of drunkenness, however we want to define that, even that's kind of slippery or sloppy in some particular way, but just, yeah, following Jesus, he doesn't want us to live a life of drunkenness. So that's the law. What we do then is we build guardrails and fences all around it to keep us from ever breaking the law. And so then we establish the guardrail of, well, then you're not allowed to drink. That, that's what we do. Does that make sense? It's a fence that you put around the original law. Or the Bible seems very clear that as followers of Jesus, he doesn't want us to live a life of lasciviousness or licentiousness. Do you know what that is? Anyone know what that is? That's, okay, you could, be, you could be committing that sin. You don't even know it because you don't, you don't know what it is. I know. Those are big King James Version words of sexual immorality. So it's fair to say, Scripture should be very clear, that as followers of Jesus, he doesn't want us to be involved in sexual morality. But what we do then is we take that law, which seems clear, and we build guardrails and fences around it. And we say things like, no dancing. Or no mixed bathing. Or no twerking after 7 p.m. Those are the sorts of things that we do. But here's the problem. Over time, over time, the law and the guardrails get blurred so that you can't tell the difference between the one and the other. And then eventually crossing the guardrail is viewed as breaking God's law. Does the Bible say no mixed bathing? No, it doesn't. Does the Bible say no dancing? No, it doesn't. Does the Bible say if your right arm doesn't go all the way under the water in baptism, you'll lose it in heaven? No, it doesn't. And so what happens over time, those things get blurred. And when you see somebody breaking a guardrail, you have that, (gasps) Or another problem is is when I impose my guardrails in your life. And that's not your issue. And it's this phenomenon of concentrating on the exterior or on the outside or on what is observable with the human eyes. It was a very common thing in the days of Jesus. Jesus encountered this kind of religiosity all of the time. There was an emphasis on the exterior on the observable, on the outside. And it was justified at the time. Well, it's about holiness. It's about righteousness. It's about purity and keeping God's commands. And you would justify it in all sorts of ways. But Jesus recognized that's not the real issue. The issue is not what you can see. The issue is what lies beneath. So let me tell you a story from Jesus. It's in Mark chapter 7 is where I'm going to be. If you've got your Bible, you can follow along. Mark chapter 7, begin verse 1. It says this. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, because of my OCD, I'm totally with the Pharisees, right? I'm down with that. Yeah, you should go wash your hands. That's just gross. But their issue was not germs. Their issue was not OCD. Their issue was, no, we've got a longstanding tradition that we wash our hands in a ceremonial way before we eat. And they're noticing that Jesus' disciples aren't doing that. And it's an offense to them. It's a, you are breaking the law. You're breaking the traditions. We are supposed to wash our hands. In fact, now, Mark's re- like when Mark writes his gospel, it will primarily go to the Gentiles and not the Jews. And so he has to explain oftentimes what he means. And so when you see verse 3, there's a parenthetical note. It's Mark explaining to the Gentiles. You might not know this about the Jewish uh, background, but here's what's happening. So here's what I he said, verse 3. The Pharisees and uh, all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other kind of traditions just like that, such as the washing of cups and washing of pitchers and kettles. In fact, there was a whole ritual that the Jews would practice of cleanliness and uncleanliness and holiness and not being holy and it involved these rituals. And that's what's at stake here. And so they just go to Jesus directly in verse 5. They come up to him and say, Hey, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? In verse 6, Jesus says back, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites, which, by the way, this is not how you win friends and influence people. like, it's like oh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, this is what, he just goes, Listen here, hypocrites. That's how he goes right at it. Let me quote Isaiah to you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then he looks at him and says, you have let go of the real commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you've got a fine way even of setting aside the real commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Let me give you an example, verse 10. Moses said, by way of command, you should honor your mother and father. And anyone who curses their father and mother should be put to death. But because your human traditions... You say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is korban, which is a Hebrew word meaning it's devoted to God, it's a gift I'm giving to God, then you no longer have to do anything for your parents. So what that means is like you see your mom's in need, you see your dad's in need, and rather than helping them, you go, "Eh, I'm going to take this and I'm going to devote it to God. And you find a way to get around actually honoring your your father and mother or helping your father and mother. He goes on. Verse thirteen. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. So Jesus calls the crowd to him, and he says, "This. This is the lesson. Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by making uh, by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And now, even after he's done talking to the crowd, his disciples are like." What, what do you mean by that? i like, like, I still need greater. So happens in verse 17, the crowd leaves, they go into a house, and the disciples ask him, like, what do, you, what do you mean by this? And Jesus says in verse 18, are you so dull? Which, again, I think Jesus is having a snarky day today. Like, this is a kinda, like Peter needs to give him a Snickers because he's not Jesus without. Jim Ruth gave that to me. I have to confess. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside could defile him them for it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out of the body and in saying this Jesus declared bacon good Oh it doesn't say that way all food's clean sorry So it goes on what comes out of a person is what defiles them for it's from within Out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come, like sexual morality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice, deceit, lewdness. That's a fun word to say, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. See, what Jesus does here, he cuts through the externals to what lies beneath. To the heart, and what is radically different about Jesus that is missed by most religious groups, including many churches, is that he's really not into behavior modification. That's not Jesus' main focus is behavior modification. And listen, I'm not opposed to that. I don't know if you know what I mean by that in terms of concepts. Like parents will sometimes observe uh, uh, behavior modification by way of rewards and punishments to kind of get their kids to act and behave in certain ways. Of th- think, think in your mind the carrot and the stick. Like that's about behavior modification. And you could get behavior modification tips in, in parenting seminars. If you want to lose weight, what will you receive? Probably some tips on behavior modification. If you want to quit smoking, what will they give you? Probably some tips on behavior modification. But it seems like in the religious world, all of our heated debates are about behavior and behavior modification. And then we even in the end ultimately tack onto it assignments like, well, you should just read your Bible. you know, Go spend 15 minutes in, in a devotional time with Jesus every day or go attend a group or give faithfully. Or, and listen, I'm not opposed to those things. What I'm saying is you can do all of those things and your heart can still be far away from God. And you can see this most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, this idea that, no, Jesus is not, he's not interested in the external. He's interested in what lies beneath. He begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in this moment, you're thinking, oh, so our behavior's probably got to be better than the Pharisees. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about at all. It's not about the kinds of behaviors. It's the source of our behaviors. See, the Pharisees were concerned about the external, of observing all the laws. Jesus no, no, our righteousness will come from inside. It will be from the inside out. That's why the very next verse, he points right to this idea of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall not murder, which is right. I mean, that's in the law. He says, but I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother. See, you can't get to murder without going through the heart issue of being angry with your brother. He'll go on to the next issue in Matthew chapter, verse five, or chapter 5, verse 27, about adultery. He says, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery, and it does. I mean, you can't argue that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is Jesus doing? Now, you can't get here until you pass through your heart here. Or he'll say later in Matthew 5, verse 33, about oaths. Like, you've heard it was said that do not break your oaths. But I say to you, don't swear at all. Because it's about your heart. And if you're the kind of person that has to go, no, I swear to God on this temple or on the gift of the temple, and I mean, what that means is that your heart is not one where it's either a yes is a yes and a no is a no, and you can't get here without first passing through the heart issue there. You see how that works? You can't get to murder without going through anger. You can't get through adultery without going through lust. You can't get to breaking your oaths without having a heart that's just not honest. The issue for Jesus is what lies beneath. And it doesn't take long working with teenagers in youth ministry before you have the conversations that go something like this. Well, like how far can we go? Like, you know, in the sex dating realm, like where's the line? Like how far can we go? Is first base okay? Is second base okay? And, of course, everyone has their definitions of what those bases are. Now, if I'm talking to my three kids, the answer is this. First base is a terrible sin, and if you ever get there, you'll burn in hell forever. But if I'm talking to your kids, I'm going to say this. That's the wrong question. The question, how far can you go, is a question that implies you want to know how close you can come to sin and still be okay. It's a question that's in the realm of behavior modification. And Jesus really isn't concerned about that realm, at least not ultimately. He's concerned about your heart. And the question is, what does it say about your heart that you want to get as close to sin as you can? And what would it look like if instead your heart was asking the question, how do I give myself to Jesus in total surrender, love, and abandonment? And if a teenager does that, and by way of heart enters into that realm, you won't ever have to worry about how far they'll go in their dating relationships. If a teenager falls radically in love with Jesus... I'm telling you, you don't have to worry about all the things we typically harp about with drugs and alcohol and sex. And the reason why is because their heart, what lies beneath, has been consumed by Jesus and love. And Jesus himself will say this even explicitly. I don't know if you, like in, in the Jewish world, there were like over 600 commands. And one day somebody comes up to Jesus and goes, like, I know we got like over 600 commands. But in your opinion, like, like, what's the greatest? Like if you had to kind of make a list of a, is there a hierarchy now, what's interesting to me is Jesus could have said, Well, if it came from my Father, then they're all equal. No, but he doesn't do that at all. Like, Jesus says, Oh, yeah, that's easy. Like, you want to know what the greatest commands? I got two for you. And then he says, It's in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. He'll say, The first is this Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it Love your neighbor as yourself. And then what's interesting is, look what he says in verse 40. All of the law and prophets, I mean, all those other 600 commands, they hang on these two commandments. What that means is if you could get loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself right, you don't need to worry about the other 600 commandments. They will will naturally flow out of the overflow of those two of love. Now, I I don't want a youth ministry that's focused on behavior modification. I want a youth ministry that's centered on Jesus. Which, by the way, as a side note, Adam is starting tonight a study on Jesus with both element and seismic. So if you've got a kid in middle school or high school, get them out to the pit this afternoon. There's times on the back of the bulletin for you and for your kid not to find behavior modification, but love and passion for Jesus. And this isn't a teenage issue. This is an everyone issue, the heart. And we know this to be true in all of our other relationships. I mean, how would you feel as a parent if... In the end, your parents or your kids only obeyed you because they were afraid of you or because they wanted something from you. Now, some of you might be like, no, I'll take that for now, which I get. But ultimately, there's something like if the only reason why they obey is because they're afraid or because they want something, there's something that like oh, then nothing gets affected in their heart. Like it's, it's bad. And you can see this in, your, in marriages, right? I mean, wives, let me ask you, if, if you found your husband has like a to-do list and you read the to-do list and on it it has things like, you know, uh, uh, kiss wife, check, tell her I love her, check, compliment her dress, check, give her a hug, check. Now, on one level, you might be like, well, at least I'm getting kissed and hearing that. But on another level, you don't want it to come because of a checklist. You want it to come from the heart. Or even this morning, showing up to church, I mean... The words are on the screen, and we're singing along, but maybe this is like Jesus said about in Isaiah, their lips are honoring me, but they really are far from me. And you'd feel this, wouldn't you? Like if you had a birthday party, for you, it's your birthday, all your friends and family came over, they come out with a cake, just a few candles. You know, the cake comes out, and everyone starts singing, Happy birthday to you. Yeah, you kind of know it, right? I'm not feeling the love here. It feels like your hearts are far from me. But in this, here's what I'd say. Never underestimate your ability to judge other people based on their behavior while at the same time ignoring what lies beneath in your own heart. And, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but, I mean, I find myself here all the time where you just can't underestimate your ability to judge other people based on their behavior while at the same time ignoring what lies beneath in your own heart. You get fixated well they're doing this and they got this behavior and what happens is it redirects any attention to what lies beneath in your own life in your own heart and focuses on others. But let me give you a verse I'd encourage you to memorize if you haven't already. This would be a good one. It's in Proverbs chapter four, verse twenty-three. Here's what it says: Proverbs four twenty-three. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do. Flows from it. So your heart is of extreme value. And, and that's why we guard it, because it does have value. So you don't guard things that aren't valuable. Like every Monday night, I roll my trash can out to the curb in South Bend in my neighborhood, and then I go back in the house and I don't think about it again. Like I don't obsessively look out the window. Is it okay? You know, is it all right? I mean, because I could care less, right? In fact, if you want to come over and take something out of my trash, I don't care. It has no value to me anymore. But not so with our heart. It's the essence of who we are. It's your authentic self, the core of your being. It's where all of your dreams and your desires and your passions live. It's the part of you that connects with God and with others. So, And it's of great value. But it's also the source of everything you do. Like when we were in Arkansas in college, they had around us just lots of natural springs, like just deep within the ground water that would just come up, just natural spring water And if you plugged it up, then there would be no water. Or if you poisoned it, everything became toxic and it affected everything downstream. Your heart is the same way. If your heart is full of bitterness, it will become toxic and it will contaminate everything downstream in your life, your relationships, your work, your health. And I don't want to be a huge downer, but if I'm going to be a faithful pastor, I do need you to know this. The condition of your heart without Jesus is very dark. And I don't want you to fool yourself into giving yourself more credit than you rightly should. Your heart, apart from Jesus, is dark. I have moments where I'm convinced, if you remove Jesus from my life in this particular way, I'm capable about just anything. And like sometimes you watch the news and you think to yourself, oh, how could they? And I think, oh, no, you take Jesus out of my life, and I think I'm capable of that. I'm one moment of rage apart from Jesus, away from a felony conviction and real jail time. And I'm not above it. I'm one moment of bitterness away from completely scandalizing and embarrassing myself and those that I love because of the behavior that flows out of that. I'm one moment of pride away and then you could fill in the blank. Or I'm one moment of lust away and you could fill in the blank. And you have to know that about yourself. It's important that you recognize the depth of darkness that lurks in your heart. And the most dangerous people are those who think they're above it. The most dangerous people are those who do not recognize the darkness of their own heart. And even those of us who are following Jesus, I would still suggest we still have parts of our heart that we've not fully surrendered, that we've not fully given over, that still requires conversion and sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit to cast out that darkness that exists in that place that lies beneath. And that's why, I know we said, you know, the prayer, like you pray Jesus into your heart. And I'm obviously nothing wrong with that, but quite honestly, I don't think Jesus is interested in coming into your heart. Like, at least not the one that exists. I mean, even asking it, it feels like, you know, my heart that is in my life and coming, you can live in this room, and there's others in this room, and that like I think Jesus is like, no, I'm not interested in just coming and being a part of your heart. He's interested in like ripping out that old heart and giving you an entirely brand new one. And what I would suggest is if you're really honest, I think what you'll recognize at the very core of that unsurrendered places in our heart, it will be pride that will be there. It's pride. Pride is what lies beneath. The great theologian Augustine proposed that pride was like a mother pregnant that gives birth to all other sins. Meaning, you could make a list of all other sins and when you roll them all back, it stemmed from pride. See, lust is really about pride. Anger it's really about pride. Bitterness, stealing, lying, cussing, sexual I mean, whatever, it all really, when you roll it back, comes from pride. So then what do we do about this? Like, how do we change our hearts and what lies beneath? And my answer is this, you don't. And all attempts to will simply be more behavior modification. And So I just don't have at the end of this message, you know, read your Bible more, you know, pray more, get in a group, serve, give money, I'm for all those things, but that's not what I have for you here at the end. Because you can do all those things and still never attend to what lies beneath. So here's the only thing I have for you today, and it's this. The only way for you to really have what lies beneath changed and transformed is for you to surrender your heart fully to Jesus. It's an act of surrender. It's a moment where you say, I'm giving you everything. Everything. And I mean everything. I'm not holding back anymore on anything. It's that moment where you confess the darkest parts of your heart and ask for the Spirit of God to fill all of those spaces with the presence of the resurrected Lord Jesus. That every space. It's to to step into the prayer that the Psalms teach us in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, where it says, Search me, God, and know my heart. And test me, know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way of everlasting. It's instead of continually trying to pretend that those dark places aren't there, which is all of our initial responses. That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's to expose what lies beneath to the cross of Jesus, to say, I really am prideful. I really am bitter. I really am full of lust. I really am angry or selfish or whatever it is that you need to say. Or maybe it's an experience in your life that needs to be exposed to the light of Jesus. Because sometimes that happens too. If you grow up in in a lot of abuse, uh, that will shape what lies beneath. And it might be just a matter of saying to Jesus, I have this life experience, or I lost this loved one, or I had this traumatic thing, and letting Jesus step in and saying, I surrender even this experience to you. But in terms of can what lies beneath change, even in nature, did you know that icebergs, what lies beneath, are always changing. They're always shifting and moving and changing in size and shape. It's being transformed. You know how it happens? It happens by the context and environment that surrounds it. See, the iceberg does nothing to change itself. It can't. No iceberg says, you know, today I'm going to take on this. No, no, the iceberg does nothing. What changes underneath the iceberg is the conditions and the environment that surrounds it. Same with you. You will not change what lies beneath. It will only be transformed by the environment and the context of its surroundings. And this goes both ways. Like I've seen people, like, I want to give my life to Jesus. And then what happens is then they go back to that context and surrounding that isn't Jesus. Maybe with their old friends or that old lifestyle or their own pattern. And so what happens is then that environment and that context begins to shape what lies beneath. But if you'll give it to Jesus and say... I want to find myself squarely around the context environment that is Jesus, that what lies beneath gets transformed by Jesus into his likeness, into his image. So for you, what I'd say, what lies beneath is where we focus, and in it, submerge that, what lies beneath, into Jesus. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray about these things. God, the first thing we want to do is just confess that we are not capable in our own discipline or will or strength of changing much of anything. And so we acknowledge that uh, up front to say, we are going to need you and the power of your son Jesus to desperately take effect in our life for us to have what lies beneath changed and transformed in any way. And the first thing that we need is a revelation of what that is. And so we all have kind of defensive mechanisms that keep us from seeing the truth, and so I'm asking even now in this moment as we have some silence that your spirit will be at work in such a way that it will reveal to each one of us those dark places that we've held back and have not totally surrendered to your son Jesus. And in it we're asking this not to be overwhelmed or depressed or discouraged as we walk out but rather to see it even as a sign of your grace and your mercy that you're not leaving us alone. You still, because of your love for us, desire to see what lies beneath change and transform. So would you just speak to us now? to each one of us individually what is it we need to hear in regards to the condition of our heart. these things to you, God. Transform us, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.